Winning at Work, episode 65 with Mike Fiera. The, the topic today is, is one that I and I think a lot of Americans associate with, and that is the story of an underdog. And now not necessarily the brand that we're going to be talking about today, but when you talk about the superpower, when you go into work or you're struggling and fighting against, you know, bigger organizations, well, maybe in fact that will um, kind of play into the current brand that we're going to talk about. But that's going to be our superpower discussion today is, you know, how to thrive and, and succeed when you're the underdog. And I'm really pleased to welcome into the program Mike Fierro. He's got a background of food and beverage. And the idea came to us of this underdog theme because the companies he has worked for, he felt like that was uh, a good indication of, of kind of life in sales, life in operations. And currently, Mike is the vice president of sales at the Smarties Candy Company. And that's right, Smarties, one of the most famous, iconic, nostalgic uh, candies that we all know and love. Mike, welcome in. Tony, first off, thank you very much for having me uh, on your podcast. I, I simply I absolutely love what you do, and I really have enjoyed listening to your past guests. So thank you very much. Well, it's the guests that make it possible because I can promise you no one comes to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, is Smarties, are they iconic or are they nostalgic or are they both? Where, where does this fall in the realm of those type brands? Uh, it's a great question, Tony. I think Smarties Candy is truly a, an iconic brand in the in the candy industry, uh, especially here in the United States. Um, but it's also very much a nostalgic item, as uh, there's a big trend right now in the industry for nostalgic type items. So we we kind of hit both. We're an icon. Um, we're also nostalgic, and uh, it's literally a dream come true to work here. I, I must admit. Well, before we launched the episode today, I wanted to just kind of see where you guys were on the social channels. And I just want to drop some facts for people because this is pretty cool. So if you go to Smarty's Facebook page, they have over a million people that like their page and well over a million people that follow the page. So every time they put anything out on socials, about a million, it's, it, who knows how many people it hits. I know they have algorithms, but in theory, you've got about a million people that are getting hit on their Facebook page with a new post from Smarties. And when you kind of look through the media, it's really cool how they're tying in colors and fashion and all kinds of other really interesting things that people have used Smarties for over the years. And then you go to their Instagram page and it's more of the same. Now, you don't have as many followers, but it's still the same idea. And I just want to um, say something about the, the global candy market size. I was doing some research. It looks like, let's see, as of June 2021, the global candy market was worth in U.S. dollars $209 billion. Does that sound right? That sounds... That sound low? No, no, that's that sounds about right globally, Tony. Okay, about two hundred billion. So, 
you you've got a a pretty good size uh piece of pizza to work with right to kind of take on more more shares that's for sure and and i must say you know one of my hardest decisions in in my professional career really was accepting this position and i took a look at that well you know i've worked for startups my entire life and so when the opportunity was presented to me to come on to Smarties Candy as the vice president of sales, I, I took a step back and said, wow. I said, here's an icon in the industry, um, 67 years young at the time uh, when I was presented the opportunity. And, and I said, how can I impact a company that has been around 67 years? And, and it was terrifying, but it was also exciting. So I really took a look at it and said, well, let me see what I can do. Let me see. Plus the fact, Tony, that that it was my first entrance in the confectionery. I had no prior candy experience. I had no confectionery experience. So, so I'm joining an icon with no candy experience, and it was terrifying, but it was also exciting. And I love the challenge. Um, and when I really took a deep look and said, you know, where are the avenues I can impact this brand? And, and I saw a lot of runway. So I jumped in with both feet, and now I'm five years on and loving absolutely every second of it. You know, it must be humbling when you move into a brand like that, right? Because oftentimes you're heading into a VP role, you're expected to know everything and to take charge of everything, but you come in, you know, and that makes sense in a startup, right, or an entrepreneurial situation because there's not a whole lot there yet. So you can grease the wheels, get everything moving, establish the relationships. But I guess what you're saying is you go to a company that's already established, it kind of makes you step back a little bit, right? And kind of reevaluate what direction the company should be going because who are you to say what direction it should be going? It's a, it's already an iconic brand. Exactly. And really hats off to the three presidents of Smarties Candy, which happened to be uh, fifth generation candy makers and the granddaughters of the founder. Um, Liz D, uh, Sarah D, and Jessica D. Sawyer, um, just amazing people who, who took a chance on me. And um, I hope to think that it's paid off because numbers are great. And um, we continue to innovate and we continue to just find new ways to impact retailers and consumers and end users. Um, you know, and going back, Tony, the gentleman I replaced at the desk was, was here 34 years, and I had a really one sales manager to rely on coming into the industry uh, and into this position. And unfortunately, he passed away suddenly four months into my tenure. So oh, I was awful. Yeah, it really was. And, um, and it was scary because at that time I had no one. So it was really learning the confectionery business as quickly as possible and just figuring out ways to really run a freight train and and continue to trail blaze new paths to end user. Yeah, it's got to be a little terrifying when all the institutional knowledge is just evaporated, right? That's what you're saying. So you had to kind of come in and, and be scrappy. So I guess really being an underdog, I guess you, you – went from not thinking you were going to be an underdog to immediately underdog again because your um, your support system that you thought you might have was gone. So 
Before we get into that theme, I, I want you to tell us more about the brand and the culture. Everyone knows Smarties, but tell us stuff that we don't know. Sure. Um, our founder, Edward D., uh, who unfortunately passed away in November of 2019, um, sailed over from England in 1947 with his wife, his firstborn son, and two candy machines. And was really in pursuit of the American dream to produce a candy in the United States uh, that can be well-loved and, and sold throughout the U.S. So he landed in Bloomfield, New Jersey in 47 and started Smarties Candy in 1949. Um, like I had mentioned, his three sons ran the company up until about 10 years ago. And now they have passed the company along to their daughters, which are the uh, granddaughters of the founder, Edward. And right now we currently have two facilities, one in Union, New Jersey, and one in Newmarket, Canada. We produce roughly 2 billion rolls of Smarties annually. We run two, um, the two facilities, we have three shifts. We run 24-7. And we're truly a family-owned family-run company. Um, the, our presidents really believe heavily in a, in a work-life balance. So, you know, we work hard during the day, but we leave work at work, rarely work weekends. We, there's no emails, no phone calls at 11 o'clock at night or on a Sunday. They truly respect a, a work-life balance. And for that, everybody bleeds for this company. I mean, it's, we're a small staff. We, we rely very heavily on a broker network in the United States. Okay. And so you use brokers. You also mentioned that, uh, in terms of the product size and variety, you said it was you're innovating or it's more kind of established. I, what's the philosophy there? Well, th that's interesting because the one fact that a lot of people don't know is, is Smarties Candies, we have 100, 125 different SKUs. And a lot of people really know Smarties as the small tablet um, roll, but we have lollipops and we have um, candy necklaces. We have giant Smarties, which would be the equivalent, like the size of a quarter. Um, we have uh, mega Smarties. So we have a, a, a bunch of different items that uh, what I saw was big runway when, when I first got here. We also have different flavors of Smarties. Now, Smarties, um, the current item comes in five different flavors, but we also have tropical Smarties and we have uh, sour Smarties, extreme sour. So we have different flavors, um, but we're also relying on some innovation coming from the UK. Now, there's a company in the UK called Swizzles Matlau which turns out to be the cousin of our founder, Edward D., um, from the U.K. So we were actually just introduced an item called Smarty Squashies, which is a gummy-type marshmallow item, something completely different from what we've done in the past, but it's really resonating very strong with retailers and consumers because gummies are, are a very hot item in the marketplace right now. So we're looking at different items. We're even looking at different iterations, maybe – down the road, beverages, you just never know. The, the brand is so strong and has uh, is a household name. So the sky's the limit on what we can do with this brand. I love it. That's a brand extension. And 
why not? You've got so many other brands that have taken their name and their their goodwill that they've worked decades to establish. <clears throat> you know, why not just push it out and continue the the fun? What are the trends that you're seeing right now in in I guess this in the in the confectioner space or the the candy space? Um, certainly, um, better for you, um, which is kind of tough when you're a, uh, dextrose sugar item, um, gluten-free, vegan, um, allergen-free, which consequently we hit every single one of those boxes. Uh, Smarties Candy is a, um, gluten-free, peanut-free, uh, both our facilities are 100% peanut-free, so there's no cross-contamination. Uh, we're free of all major allergens, um, and it's um, a vegan. So we we really hit some major trends in the industry right now. Yeah, that is a pretty hot trend right now. But you kind of have to just be who you are, too, right? I mean, you are your candy. At you the end of the day, yes, you we're can't candy. not be candy and sugar. Exactly. At the end of the day, we just want to make people smile and make people happy about their everyday lives. And, um, you know, the great part about this, um, candy industry is, is we have a tendency to be recession proof. Um, obviously COVID was tough on everybody in every industry. Um, but people still want to go back to nostalgic items and brands that they can resonate with their past and, and make them happy. So where we did have a tough year in 2020, like everybody else, we've rebounded strongly and um, I see no end in sight to this brand. Yeah, I'm really fascinated, though, with how an iconic or nostalgic brand goes to market. You know, I'm I think that's something that I'm going to have to look into a little bit more about Smarties, because I think a lot of the things I'm seeing on social seem to be more current, but. I'm sure that's a, a conversation for the marketing department, you know, how they go out and well, that, rekindle and kind of capture that. Um, you know, this brand has been successful for now 72 years with a very limited marketing budget. Um, we do not have the budgets of a Mars or a Hershey or, or the big players, um, hence the underdog theme once again. So um, I believe in the history of this company, we've had one spokesperson, and it was Mr. T way back in the early 80s. Um, I did it, fool. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was really geared towards, you know, the Smarties theme, not only candy, but also uh, raising awareness for schools and, and, and making kids, you know, really work hard in school. So it was a great program, but again, a very limited budget. We didn't have a lot to work with. Um, and even to this day, I mean, we, we, we do not advertise, we, other than maybe some trade publications, um, we don't have the money for advertising or a big spokesperson. So we do rely heavily on social media. And, um, you know, we have customers that have, I would say, have had this brand 70 years ago in their Halloween uh, candy bags. Uh, that's how I was, you know, introduced to of this course, brand. Of course, that's how I found it too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. So I wasn't aware that there wasn't a big marketing push behind it, but yet it, it continues to it continues to move on. Well, let's kind of get into the whole superpower, this uh, underdog theme. Well, I mean, 
The world does love a great underdog story. I mean, there's a whole psychology around really why it is better to be an underdog. People love the story. It kind of captures like the challenges, all these insurmountable odds. All of a sudden, you know, the little guy overcomes everything in the face of adversity and boom, you know, comes out on top. And I've never really thought of that as a superpower, but you kind of beg to differ. Agreed. And when we started talking, Tony, it was pretty amazing as I look back on my career, which spans 29 years and I'm dating myself, but um, it's never date that. yourself, never date yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Still got a long way to go though. That's, that's for sure. right. Um, but every position I held or, or every brand I've represented really has been a David versus Goliath situation. Um, everyone was an uphill battle, um, from inception to acquisition. Um, Definitely some some major successes, but also some some failures along the way. And and I believe that the failures is what made me stronger and made me look at things a different way. Um, going back, selling Mystic Ice Tea versus Snapple in Arizona, or um, Crystal Geyser Water versus Poland Spring and Nestle. Um, then getting the opportunity with Vitamin Water um, from inception, literally selling the first cases of product. Um, to Coca-Cola acquiring the brand seven years later for $4 billion. Um, then jumping over to um, the salty snack side and, and developing and um, starting Pop Chips, which, again, a new potato chip in a salty, salty snack industry that's dominated by Lay's and Wise and Hers. Um, then taking another step into beef jerky and fighting the, the likes of Jack Link's uh, with Chef's Cut Beef Jerky. And again, another David versus Goliath situation. Then also taking my own road and, and starting a brewery down in St. Augustine, Florida, right before the, the big craft beer boom um, and jumping into a situation there that I actually owned and turned out to be one of my biggest failures. But I've learned a, an awful lot from it. Um, and then working for a celebrity, uh, Kid Rock, and running his beer company, American Badass Beer, in Detroit, Michigan, which um, Michigan is a hotbed of craft beer, uh, going up against the likes of Bud Miller and Coors. And then ultimately here at Smarties Candy, which is a true icon, but again, fighting the likes of a Mars and Hershey. So it's it's been an amazing run, um, but it is kind of interesting how everyone was an underdog in in one shape or another you are a glutton for punishment i think that's what it sounds like pretty much yeah i would say <laughs> now wait a minute american badass beer company that is kid rocks yes yes it's kid rocks owned um and it was a, a very interesting situation i i actually um left chef's cut and was looking for the next big thing and was introduced to his manager. And um, his manager had come to me and said, listen, I have a client who started a beer company, but it subsequently failed. But he really wants to get behind it and would like you to come on and resurrect the brand. And it was a major challenge. Um, I live in New Jersey. It was based in Detroit, Michigan. So... I commuted from New Jersey to Detroit 
five days a week, 6 a.m. flights out of LaGuardia every Monday, 6 p.m. flights out of Detroit every Friday, and put my blood, sweat, and tears into this challenge. Um, Kid Rock was gracious enough to let me actually live at his house um, when I was in Detroit, so, so that was pretty amazing. But the, the biggest challenge really was resurrecting a brand from the dead, and because the brand did fail, um, so the challenge was how do we get this brand back? How do we get it into people's hands that have tried it and didn't like it um, and are very hesitant to try a brand again? I mean, it's it's very rare in this industry when a, when a brand dies, it, it, you can't really get it to come back to life. Um, but what, so what would be the net net of that experience? I don't, I know we're not really prepared to go into American badass beer, but you do bring up an interesting point. And I think I'd be, I, I would, I'd not be happy with myself if I didn't ask you. So what's the, what's the final analysis is, can you, you know, take a brand that's dead and, and get people to retry it? What, what happens? It, it takes an awful lot, Tony, I will say. Um, what I did have was an asset. I had the biggest asset I could have, which was Kid Rock, who is a internationally known celebrity, but literally has God status in the state of Michigan. Um, so, But Michigan is a hotbed for craft beer. It's probably one of the best craft beer states in the country. You have brands like Founders and Bells and um, Griffin Claw and New Holland. I mean, incredible craft beers. So, you know, I was tasked with finding a brewery, uh, finding a brewmaster and reintroducing it. And by reintroducing it, it was working days with the distributor, selling to retailers, afternoons doing tastings at, at liquor stores and at nights doing bar promotions and getting it back into people's hands. And I will say, I don't think I've ever worked harder, um, but it was definitely an amazing experience. And unfortunately, after um, two years, I had to make a personal decision to walk away because it was literally just tearing my family apart. Um, well, it sounds like you put everything into it, and it's very commendable that you you just have that work ethic. You know, you put your name to it, you put everything behind it, and... Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who they don't have enough self-awareness, you know, to realize, hey, I might have to step back here because family or, you know, God, whatever, you know, is being neglected. You got to you got to take care of those other pillars in your life. You can't I mean, obviously, your work pillar was super strong. But if your family pillar is weak, if your spiritual pillar or your emotional pillar, if those things get weak, the whole house falls down. So you absolutely sounds like you you made a very smart move. Um, probably very hard to to do that because you know you you wanted to see it all the way through. Absolutely. Plus, living a, a rock star lifestyle. I mean, literally the rock star life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was um, it was amazing, and I must say, Kid Rock is is an incredible person. Um, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He can work a room like a politician. He, he takes time to listen. Um, but the one thing I really learned about celebrities is their commitment to excellence. Um, he's a consummate professional in, in everything he does. I mean, um, you know, when he was working, he was up at four thirty-five in the morning. Um, I, the office we had, he had a rehearsal studio on the back. So, I heard them rehearse six, seven, eight hours a day. Um, 
he put everything into what he does and, and, and that's why he's successful. And, and I did take a page out of that because I put absolutely everything I do, um, into what I do. I finished a class on servant leadership and people have heard me talk about this, but I haven't mentioned one of the forms of, or powers of influence you have over people. One is called referent power. And that's for those who haven't um, read the book, that was kind of a new term for me, but basically it just means that you, you honor, you respect someone that you see for just how they live their life. And you're just influenced by that. You know, you're motivated by that. And it's not like they're quote unquote doing something to you. It would be like you witness your mother or your father or your grandparents, you know, and you, and you respected what they did and you wanted to kind of make them proud. I get the feeling that because Kid Rock was so dedicated, you yourself, you couldn't help feel that you yourself needed to kind of match that same level of intensity. You mean you already had it, but I think it really brought that out. Absolutely. And I, I felt that if I wasn't working as hard as he was, um, that I shouldn't be in the position. So it was 15, 16 hour days. Um, and it was, you know, out in Detroit, Monday to Friday, sometimes Saturday, sometimes two, three weeks at a time to, to get the brand back off, back on its feet again. So did you meet with the Motor City Madman? I mean, that's what everyone really wants to know. I had the opportunity to meet him at one of his uh, shows. Now, uh, Kid Rock, in the, in the middle of this, did a 10-run show in uh, Clarkson, Michigan. And at that time, there were celebrities that would come in and sing a couple songs here and there. So, so I did have a chance to, to meet him, um, met Bob Seger. And one quick story was, was after a show, uh, we're sitting at Kid Rock's backyard and, and it was kind of an after party. So, so I'm sitting by the fire with a gentleman. He asked me what I do for a living and I'm pounding my chest saying, you know, I, I'm, I work for Kid Rock. I run his beer company. I said, what do you do? He goes, I shot and killed Osama bin Laden. So, <laughs> okay. It, it, it he just run up you. So <laughs> you met with one of the SEAL team. What SEAL team was he with? SEAL team six it was Robert O'Neill. And, uh, I, I literally almost fell off my chair. <laughs> so it wow. was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So for those of you who don't know, the Motor City Madman is, is Ted Nugent. So that's great. Well, so you, you had the heart wrenching decision to leave Kid Rock and the glamorous lifestyle at, at times to, to move into Smarty. So Tell us how you're, how you're winning at work. I mean, give us some of your strategies. That's why, you know, people come here. They are like a mini master class, if, if you will. Everyone goes to YouTube. They go to Google when they want to try to, you know, figure out how to solve a problem. So, all right, you're the underdog or they're the underdog in sales. And now they, they realize that, right? And they've got to compete against Goliath. So what's, what are the big takeaways for uh, um, David, well, I, I think one of the, one of my management philosophies has been, you know, we may not be, or I may not be your biggest brand or your biggest supplier. Um, but I will damn sure be your best. So it is really taking 
doing all the little things that maybe the big companies don't do, whether it is assist a retailer doing a reset from midnight to five in the morning or, you know, putting a sales incentive together to motivate their um, cashiers, um, doing different, doing things differently with the budget I have to be as successful as possible. Um, another philosophy is, and I learned this very early on uh, at Glass of Vitamin Water, was to always work outside of my comfort zone. Um, obviously, nobody likes stress and confrontation, and um, you know everyone likes to just sit back and relax. But but that is not when your best work is done. So I force myself into situations where I can actually perform at a higher level. Can you give um, me an example of something that's happened? Um, no, that's I'm putting you point. on the spot because yeah. this is – my CEO has come to me and said, you know, he wants to turn the heat up and make the, make the pot boil. That's how he, how he puts it. He's like, you know, things happen when it's heated and things bubble. You know, that's when lots of things happen. That's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, all I can really attribute to a, an early example would be at Glass of Vitamin Water. And, and here we are going into major distributors across the United States that have no idea what this item is. Um, they're selling Canada Dry. They're selling Snapple. They're selling big items. And, and here we are with a new concept and a new item that's quite simply they don't care about. Um, so it's getting in and, and motivating not only the management team, but motivating the sales reps and motivating the drivers and motivating pretty much everybody top to bottom. Um, it was my first year at, at Vitamin Water, and, and I apologize going back to there, but we spent out of 52 weeks in a year, I, I spent 26 of them traveling to new markets across the country, most cities I've never been to, um, to repeat this process and just continue to motivate people and work the streets from morning to noon till midnight when we're, you know, doing what we used to call midnight rip sessions. And we used to set shelves in convenience stores and put up point of sale, um, total encompass everything, our entire life into what we did. So when you're trying to break a, a brand in and find shelf space, what what's worked for you? Um, I'm looking at the weakest link, basically <laughs> speaking with the retailer and finding what the slowest item is um, and, and moving that out. Additionally, also with putting the brand into people's mouths, sampling, heavy sampling, we guerrilla marketing at its best. Um, so would you do it at the, at the retail level where the, you know, where the owner or the, or the decision maker was? Absolutely. Not only the decision maker, the cashier, the stock person, um, treat every, we treated everyone as a consumer and like a consumer because they ultimately they are. So if they like the brand, if you throw them a t-shirt or throw them a hat or, or, or something like that, that person will act as your salesman, you know, weeks down the road while, while you're in a different city doing the same thing. So your strategy was, you know, get them to open up and be honest about what their weakest performing, lowest ROI item was in that general category 
and offering to you know compete against that, and then you let them taste it. They could see that it was better, and that was your kind of guerrilla tactic. Absolutely, yes. And that sounds labor intensive. Yeah, I mean, um, but I we, mean, we, how else do you? That's what I'm saying. How else do you do it? I don't, I don't know. That's why I'm, I'm kind mm-hmm. of digging because a lot of people out there right now are starting food brands. I mean, people are fooling around in their kitchens, creating things and they take it to the farmer's market and suddenly everyone likes it. They start selling out, you know, Hey, where can I buy your product? Well, it's not in grocery stores. Well, gosh, you need to get in there. So, right. I mean, how do you get out there and fight and and make it, make it known? I remember it reminds me of a quick story, Tony, when, after I had left, um, vitamin water, I went to work for honest tea. And at that time, honest tea was really thriving in the natural, um, market in their, with their glass product. Um, I was tasked to launch their PET or their plastic bottles into the U S um, and, and took the same strategy pretty much that we had at vitamin water and crystal geyser. And again, it was street marketing, guerrilla marketing, um, and just getting the brand into every person's hand, into every retailer. So when the time came to where Coca-Cola was um, looking to acquire the Honest Tea brand, which they eventually did, I spent a, an afternoon in New York City with two very high-level Coca-Cola executives, and they said, okay, show me your, your game plan. Show me your, your, your book of success. And I, and I looked at them and said, there is no game plan. We attack in the streets. It's every single account. It's every single customer. It's a new challenge. It's a new mission. It's getting the product into the store, getting point of sale up, getting it into people's hands. And it was repeat. Manhattan, there's 22,000 retail locations in New York City. Um, so it was nothing to hit 70 accounts in a day. And... Now, I'll take a step back. When, when we introduced vitamin water in New York City in January of 2000, dead of winter in New York City, we have an item that is brand new to the marketplace. No one's never heard of it. And no one has ever seen it. In all honesty, it looked like a medicine bottle. Um, <laughs> the, the, the one flavor looked like a urine sample. The other one looked like bath water and the other one looked like Robitussin. And, Total uphill battle here on this one. Yeah. And, and we had a, a promotion. If you bought two cases, you got one free and we only had three SKUs at the time. So you hit 70 customers. And if we sold or if I sold three deals or nine cases in a day, we were high five and back at the office. And that's literally how it started from nine cases a day to 500 cases a month to a thousand cases a month to 10,000 cases a month. Um, when Coke acquired the brand back in 2007, um, I think we were doing $350 million in sales. They had purchased the brand for 4.1 billion. Um, but now the item annually is doing a, a billion dollars on its own not including smart water, which was kind of a shoe, a throw in on the deal. And and that's one of the highest selling bottled waters globally. I mean, how did you even get people's attention? You walk into 70 accounts, you're obviously not setting an appointment. Are you, aren't you just, or maybe you are, what, what's happening there? 
this was straight cold calling, Tony. I would say out of 70 accounts, I would get thrown out of 60 of them. <laughs> get out of here with this garbage. What are you trying to push in the dead of winter? Um, you know, so we'd get thrown out of 50 or 60 of them. We'd get two or three to, to, to purchase the product. And then you'd get up and repeat the process the next day. And it was. Wow. Going- I just want people to, I want people just to think about that for a minute. I mean, there is such a aversion to cold calling. I know I have it. I, I hate it. No one wants to. And here yet you literally responsible for a, which is now a, a billion dollar brand and you were getting thrown out on your ear. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, it was just, it was comical at times. I mean, but what we did was, and there was four of us and, and I really have to give my hats off to Mike Rapoli, who is an absolute genius in this, in the CPG industry and a mentor and a friend of mine, um, who I res- had the utmost respect for. And, but what we would do is we would, our mission was tip Manhattan. If you got Manhattan a tip, the boroughs would follow Jersey would follow Connecticut and it would spider web out. So we would spend one week in New York city and then a week in San Diego, four of us, we would come back to New York, spend a week in New York, then do a week in Boston, a week in New York, a week in Chicago, a week in New York, a week in Miami, a week in New York, a week in Seattle. We did this for a solid year and it was just pretty much repeat the process every single day. So you knew New York was your, it was the hill you were going to die on. Yes. Yes. We, there's a book called The Tipping Point by, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. And, it is Gladwell. And, yes. Mm-hmm. And we followed that to a T. And and it was amazing to see. And it was, I mean, obviously you saw no light at the end of the tunnel in the beginning, but to, to see where it is now, it's it still makes me proud to this day to, to, to see this brand absolutely everywhere. So... Now you're at Smarties. How is this transitioning? How's this translating? You're obviously not knocking on, you know, Seven Eleven doors and um, you know bringing bags of Smarties. Or maybe Correct. you are. No, it was um, it was a big transition, Tony, from going from a startup mentality to to an, an icon and, and a well established brand. Um, but I, I did take a lot of my old work ethic and processes. And I spent the first six months here visiting every single broker in the United States. And I I still truly believe in the power of the handshake, um, face-to-face meetings. Um, So I would go out and spend three days with every broker we had. And at the time we had 34 brokers across the United States and not only meeting the brokers, meeting their salesmen, um, but also taking me to your top customers. Let me handshake. Let me say hello. Let me put a face to the brand. Let me find out what their concerns were. And, and listening to consumers or customers' concerns, whether it's what they're doing with their company or where their shortfalls are within their retail space, um, and looking at different avenues to better the brand at the end of the day. And there's a lot of what they call shippers, um, which are corrugate display units that you'll see in supermarkets and convenience stores. And, and 
we had never went down that road with Smarties. So I brought those in and, and we instantly doubled our point of purchase at retail. Uh, so it's not only on a store shelf, now it's by the counter um, or it's by the entrance or exit. Um, so basically doubling our visibility in the stores. And I, I still, I still to this day spend probably three, four days a month out in the, out in the trade. Um, you know, I, I, I do have the vice president title, but I believe you learn so much in the field, um, what trends are happening, what new items are happening, what labeling and packaging is changing, what's resonating with the consumer, what are consumers buying, what are they looking at? And, and I take a lot of that and I try to figure out a way to, to move our company into a, uh, another step forward. So how do you motivate brokers? It's tough. Um, and coming into this, um, coming into Smarties Candy, I had very little broker experience um, because a lot of my experience before was DSD or direct store delivery. So we were dealing with distributors. Um, so now we're adding another layer into the process. And brokers, I give them all the credit in the world because they manage 300, 400, 4,000 items. So it's how do you be of peace of mind with a salesman who has 400 items he has to present to a retailer in maybe as little as 15 minutes? Um, so it's, it's a lot of... Um, Face-to-face, -face, it's a lot of communication. It's a lot of um, utilizing what little budget money I have for incentives. And maybe it's a placement incentive for brokers. Um, and again, it's it's also listening to, to them and their customers' needs. So I try to really um, communicate as heavily as possible. Do you play off the fact that there is a trend for nostalgia and iconic brands? Do you, you know, share that kind of data with them to help, help kind of keep it in their mind that, Hey, you do have an iconic brand here. And you know, the, the end customer needs to have a, a market share of that. Absolutely. Uh, especially in convenience. Uh, you're seeing a trend in convenience stores now where they are making nostalgic sets and putting in items like Smarties Candy or Necco or Dum Dums. Um, but we also can play on some new trends. You know, again, we're an, an allergy-free item. We are gluten-free. We are vegan. Um, working with companies like the, uh, the Teal Pumpkin Project, which is uh, a, a company or an, a, a corporation that is really trying to help Halloween with, with people with celiacs or people with allergens. And, and they put a, a teal pumpkin on their step doorstep and, and they know if they have a peanut allergy, they can go there and trick or treat and, and not have to worry about any sort of um, uh, allergies uh, afterwards. Yes. I've seen those popping up in my neighborhood over the past couple of years. So that's um, like a little flag, kind of quote unquote, you know, that they fly, that they fly. So you, you, you know, it's safe essentially, right? Exactly. Yes. Now, in your career of DSD and now in uh, brokerage, you've always been dealing with sales, right? That's kind of who you are. Everyone can tell that, you know, massive work ethic that you have. What advice do you have for hiring leaders, right? If we, if we transition into the talent discussion, what, what are you able, how can you help someone who needs to hire at this point? 
Um, I try to certainly hire people um, that can replace me in the future. Um, I'm certainly not intimidated by a candidate with a ton of experience. I essentially want my employees to challenge me. Um, it makes me better at, at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, while on that subject, I'm also not afraid to take a risk in someone. Um, so when I, when I look at hiring, I, I want this person to be the best they can be. I want them to be better than me. I want them to strive for my position because at the end of the day, it's going to push me harder to do my work better. So I'm not intimidated by, by a candidate that may have more experience. Um, I'm also, I'm not a micromanager. Um, and I, and I strongly advise against micromanagement because you really, you, you stunt the growth of an asp an aspiring employee, uh, someone with thoughts and ideas and, and someone that really wants to excel. Uh, I put them in a position because I know they can be successful and I want them to be successful and I will guide them along the way, but I under no circumstances want to micromanage every step of what they do. Yeah. No one wants a micromanager, but if someone's failing, of course, you've got to, or struggling, you got to push them down into that freedom V and push them out really, of the comfort zone. Yeah. 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 You got to, you got to give more, you know, more structure. Well, what advice do you have for, for hiring salespeople? Cause you seem to embody a lot of those skills and traits. What do you look for when you're trying to hire salespeople? Um, See, I love catching you off guard. See, you yes. think you had everything all planned out. <laughs> the underdog has to expect the unexpected. Sure. Um, what do I look for? I look for someone who is passionate. I look for someone who wants to succeed. I look for someone who believes in the position they are um, interviewing for. I don't want, you know, what I try to avoid is people who just look for a job just for a job. Um, I consider this a lifestyle. I, you know, I give my mailman smarties. I give my UPS driver smarties. I incorporate this item into every aspect of my life. Um, my, I can see you shaking hands with someone and they pull their hand back. What? Uh, there's smarties here. <laughs> I bring smarties to the airport every time I travel. TSA gets some. Um, you know, you're like uh, uh, you're, you're like Johnny Appleseed, just dropping <laughs> these things wherever you can. The candy man, yeah. The candy man, yes. <laughs> well, there's a lot of theories out there of, of how, to, how to hire salespeople. And I, apparently it's, you know, you're in the broker network now, so that's not a... Yeah, that's not your number one focus, but yeah, I have you know. one full time. I have one full time salesman um, under our payroll, besides myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I still think your your advice still holds true, though. And you know, as an underdog and kind of owning up to that, you know, uphill battle. Any other, you know, words of wisdom for those smaller brands, startup brands that. Are trying are tackling Goliath. Um, certainly, be adaptable. Um, the retail landscape is ever changing. Um, whether it's through consolidation or different trends, um, 
certainly be able to pivot like a basketball player and not like turning a cruise ship. Um, you have to really have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the retail landscape. Um, also, you know, don't be afraid to take risks. Uh, I think I've learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. Um, and, and certainly if you're passionate about what you are selling or what you are um, bringing to the marketplace, stay true to it. Work, plan your work and work your plan. Don't deviate from your mission statement. Yeah, I love that. You know, um, definition or oh, the acronym for fail, first attempt in learning. That's good. I love that. I mean, that's that's the the attitude. You know, you you have to have. Um, and I and I do have a, a great story, Tony, um, about a failure from a very very successful person. Um, back in when I worked, one of my first positions in, in the industry was with a, uh, on the distributor end with a company called big guys are incorporated in, in New York city. Um, they still are one of the largest independent, um, non-alcoholic distributors in the United States. Um, and this was in the early nineties. So Richard Branson, um, wanted to be the underdog and take on Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And, and he launched a brand called Virgin Cola back in 1994 and he launched it first in the UK and put it on Virgin Trans and put it on Virgin Airways and, and actually landed Tesco in the UK, which is one of the biggest retailers, um, very quickly ramped the item up in the UK to where Virgin Cola was outselling Coke, Coca-Cola in the UK. Um, so Richard Branson took it a step further and decided to, to fight the big boys in their backyard. So, so he launched Virgin Cola in the United States. Um, big guys are at the time. Um, we were the first distributors to land the item. So Richard came over, put us all up in the Millennium Hotel for three nights. I mean, lavish parties and with Leo DiCaprio and the young Donald Trump at the time, just celebrities everywhere. Well, the next morning, he decides to drive a Sherman tank down uh, 42nd Street in Manhattan. <laughs> and he what was a publicity stunt. He is yes. known for that. And he was shooting Virgin Cola bottles at the Coca-Cola sign in Times Square. And, and, and he came out with um, TV commercials and, you know, he had product placement on Friends and on uh, just a different, a bunch of different shows at the time. And he was making some headway. Um, but Coke and Pepsi did not like that one bit and they put all their resources, uh, against Richard Branson and Virgin Cola and, and put out that fire quickly. Um, it was put out. Yeah. Virgin Cola is not in, in America. I can't tell you last time I saw that, but I think it was 2000 great, last time, but it was an yeah, what a great example of, of underdog and just going for it. Of course he had the, the bankroll behind it, but talk about just the need to be creative and make a splash, be bold. Don't be afraid. Yeah. That that's, that's Richard Branson in a, uh, a nutshell. So yeah, you had yeah. a chance to meet with him. I did. Uh, and, and what a just incredible person. I mean, again, an, another person that could, speak to anyone from a CEO to a janitor and just make them feel important and 
just encompass everybody around him. And he's just a magnanimous person and a tremendous personality. And, you know, here's someone talk about an underdog who started selling tapes out of his basement um, into where he is now. It's just uh, an amazing story. Yeah, and we can we can definitely all learn from that. Well, Mike, this has been a pleasure. I really just enjoyed learning that much more about Smarties. It's inevitable every time I have a food brand on, I just go to the grocery store and I look for that brand. So I'm going to be consuming Smarties now for the next couple of weeks, no doubt. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. This has been um, absolutely incredible, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm going to put links to not just your Facebook page, but also uh, to your Instagram page. And by the way, do do you guys have direct any kind of direct e-commerce sales, or does everything have to go through retail? No, we do have a web store on uh, Smarties.com. Okay, good, um, good. So I'll be sure to link that too. Great. Thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Tony, thank you very much. My pleasure.